Uh, so John chapter 3 is where we are. Before we get there, I want to uh, set the stage a little bit. Um, I'm going to show a couple. Of, hit that first movie poster. Um, tell me if you guys can tell me what that movie is. Anybody know what that's from? Usual Suspects. Um, and I'll, I'm going to talk about three movies, and they're all old enough where I can let the cat out of the bag. Um, if, for those of you who have seen this movie, it's got a, it's got a crazy twist at the end. Um, they're chasing somebody named Kaiser Soze, right? And that happens to be him on the right side. But you think he's just some, like, handicapped guy who doesn't really, he's not, like, part of the story. He's not a big deal. But he is the whole big deal. And you don't learn that until, like, the very last scene of the movie. And then the, the, the cool part about watching The Usual Suspects is watching it the second time when you see all of the stuff that he just completely, he's like in a detective's office making up a story. And you see how he's doing that after you know the punchline, right? You guys probably are going to guess what movies are coming, right? Uh, hit the next one, David. What's this one? You guys know? Fight Club. Do you guys know the, like, the, the end of that one? Like, Brad Pitt is a figment. He doesn't exist. Ladies, I'm sorry. He doesn't exist. Um, but the, the heart of the movie is, like, um, the, Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are these, like, good friends, and they've developed this thing called the Fight Club, and they're, like, rebelling against the man and society and all this stuff. And we come to the end of the movie, and Brad Pitt is just something that... Uh, that Edward Norton's character is just completely made up. He doesn't exist. He's schizophrenic, right? And the cool part about the Fight Club is watching it the first time is great, but watching it the second time I think is even better because then you can see what the, the, the writer of the movie, how he's, he's hiding that fact and how he's exposing that fact as you go through the whole movie, right? And you can see, oh, wow, now that makes a lot more sense now that I see it understanding that Brad Pitt doesn't really exist. He's just in Edward Norton's mind. And you guys, this is the, the best one, I think. Frozen. No, it's not Frozen. Although I saw that for the first time this week. Um, so anyway, this movie, like, I see dead people. And there's a scene that happens in this movie where, I forget this kid's name, but, like, Haley Joel Osment. Wow. Like, pert, well done. Um, Haley Joel Osment says to Bruce Willis, I see dead people, and then he says, they don't know they're dead. And that's a huge exposition from the author, that the dead people don't know they're dead. He's dead, but he doesn't know that he's dead, and neither does the viewer. And so we watch the whole movie thinking that Bruce Willis is his counselor trying to help this poor kid who's wrestling with this inner demon and all these difficult things. And then at the very end of the movie, we realize that Bruce Willis is in fact dead. And the author walks, when he realizes this, he walks us through Bruce seeing like he's sitting at the, at the anniversary table with his wife and she picks up the check. He thinks she's just mad at him, but ultimately she's grieving the fact that he's dead. And he, his interaction with Haley Joel Osment's mom is not really an interaction. It's just Bruce talking to her, but she never talks back. And as you watch The Sixth Sense again the second time, and you see all these things, how the author has hidden the punchline. But he's, he's quietly and gently and slowly exposing the truth. And a lot of you are probably like, oh, I knew that. I knew that. No, you weren't. 
You didn't see that coming. But like, movies are like that, and, and they engage us. And then we come back and see them the second time and see how the author has intentionally hidden the final exposition. But he's, he's gradually given us a little bit, a little piece, a little glimpse as to what is actually going to transpire. And that is, that's, that's a method that John has used in his gospel. Because at the end, we've talked about it already. Like one of the last verses is these stories I've given to you, these things I've written to you, are to show you that Jesus is the Christ. Like every story, just like in The Usual Suspects, just like in Fight Club, and just like in The Sixth Sense, every story, every intricate detail of your life is pointing to that fact. And my hope as we walk through the Gospel of John, and more specifically as we walk through this message this morning, that you would know the end, you would watch this story for the second time. And see that Jesus is orchestrating events in your life to let you know that he is the Christ. The the stuff that you are dealing with and are encountering right now is exposition to that fact. Please, I've pled with God and I'm pleading with you now to see that. All the events, all the stories that are transpiring in your life are an authored, orchestrated story written by God to wake you up to the fact that he is the Christ. And again, I'll be redundant, the Christ is not his last name. The Christ is his title. And that means God decided before time began, this is what was going to happen. I'm going to send someone to redeem all of the people and free them from their sin, free them from the bondage of sin, the the penalty and the payment and the consequence and all those. I'm going to free them from that so that they can be in right relationship with me. I'm going to bring someone. And so all of the Old Testament is pointing to this reality that is to come. And all the New Testament is pointing to this reality that has come. And all of our lives are pointing to the reality of what has transpired. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was going to come to bring to us freedom. And that is what God is trying to speak to us all the time. And that's what John's gospel is about. Let's look at the life of Christ. And I'm going to begin to gently expose the details and the signs and the directions as to how this man is the Christ. And I'm going to tell all these stories about how he is the Christ. So every single story is exposing that. And my hope is that we would encounter the story that he's going to tell us today and allow the practical application of seeing how that's exposing Jesus as the Christ and learn to take that knowledge and that ability and apply it to us into our situations and our lives and understand that Jesus is the Christ. Um, because the point of this gospel in our study is to see Jesus rightly and then pattern our lives around what we see. So I hope what we see this morning is 
Jesus correctly, see Jesus rightly. And we're going to see how John the Baptist saw Jesus rightly. So we're going to take this, we're starting in verse 22 of chapter 3, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, take it in three chunks. The first one is just kind of setting the scene for what's happening. After this, that is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, the religious guy, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he reminded there, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John yet not yet been put in prison. We'll find that out later. John the Baptist gets put in prison. Do you guys remember why John the Baptist got put in prison? There was a, a, a ruler who was who had taken his brother's wife as his own, and John the Baptist was calling it out as wrong. You can't do that. And this ruler said, I don't need somebody telling me I can't do this, so I'm going to shut him up and put him in jail. That's how John the Baptist got put in jail. Uh, later, I'll tell you, you can go read how John the Baptist was executed for similar crimes. Uh, so, this is the, the, the issue here, is that John the Baptist, to set the scene, John the Baptist is over here preaching discipling, mentoring, guiding, baptizing people. Jesus is doing the same thing over here. All right? Very simple. That's what's happening. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples, the people over here, and a Jew over purification. They're talking about cleansing and what it looks like to be cleansed, and that's a Jewish thing. They're talking about it, arguing about it. That's when we say discussion. It's really an argument, a theological debate happening between some of John's disciples and this Jewish guy. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And what, what happens here, and we'll see it as, as we go on in the next verses, what's happening here is, is that John's people, John's guys, are saying to him, Jesus has taken our people. Should we be worried? Should we be concerned with what's happening? John is taking our people. And so they get a little bit bent out of shape, and they wonder what's happening. I want us to to see in these these verses, go back and and read verse 26 again. This this seems like just a simple story, but as always, I want to kind of look beyond the verse, look beyond just the simple story. Verse 26 And they came to to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Let's let's remove ourselves from the story and see this in in our context. This happens all the time, especially in church leadership. We get consumed and concerned with us. We are so completely self-focused. And we lie to ourselves and and convince ourselves that we are, in fact, not self-focused, but they're self-focused. And, and we, we ultimately are self-focused, just like these people are. And these are people that are being discipled by John the Baptist. These aren't just like random people who may have encountered John the Baptist. These are people who have been hearing his message of repentance for years. And they're consumed with their particular situation. And the beautiful part is John's response because 
John the Baptist has seen Jesus rightly and has patterned himself and his behavior after having seen Jesus rightly. I need you to see that. John the Baptist has seen Jesus rightly and his behavior is patterned after having seen Jesus rightly. And that's the point of of what we're talking about this morning. That's the point of our lives. And that's the point of that whole Sixth Sense Fight Club stuff that I talked about. It's to convince us to see Jesus rightly in the minutia of our lives. And so that we can pattern our lives after having seen Jesus rightly. When you watch The Sixth Sense, you see Bruce Willis correctly and you view him and how he interacts with the world then as a dead guy. And it's the same idea, the same notion. We've got to see Jesus rightly. Now watch John the Baptist has been presented with self-focused people worried about themselves and their particular situation. Watch how John the Baptist responds because he's seen Jesus rightly. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Look, look at what you just read. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it was, he has received it from heaven. Okay, there's so many different ripples of the application of that. There's nothing that we possess, both emotionally or physically or anything. There's nothing that we have that we can't trace its root back to God. And the beautiful part about that is God doesn't waste a single thing. Even your own sin and the the reaction and consequences and difficulty and hardship to that sin, God does not waste it. And he wants to to reach into your soul and, and manipulate it and change it so that you might see him rightly as the Christ so that even your sin is redeemed because it has caused you to see him rightly as the Christ it's huge it's life changing another application is is for us as North Church nothing that we have or possess the the greatness and I, I, I can't tell you what a, a pleasure and life-giving and, and stress-relieving thing it has been to be in this place, in this church, for them to let us use this building at a ridiculously cheap price. I can't begin to express to you the, the stress relief that that is. We have to trace that back to God. Nothing that we possess has been given to us apart from God. And, and we celebrate with, with the, the gospel exploding in regions and in areas, and we celebrate that, and we want to engage that, and we want to send you off to that. Like, we have to hold everything that we are, everything that we ever will be or have been with an open hand because God has seen it in his righteousness, in his judgment, in his path to give it to us for this time and this season. And it may be that those things that we hold with an open hand are going to be sent off to go and sow seeds of the gospel in West County or in St. Charles or in another church in North County or in Africa because 
of the truth of verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And the only way that John came to this conclusion is because he's seen Jesus rightly as the Christ. Verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, in other words, you heard me say this to you, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John the Baptist, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one. Do not follow me except when I lead you to the Christ. And that's, a, that's like a life verse. Do not follow that guy unless he leads you to the Christ. And this is John the Baptist. And this is why he's cool with people leaving his disciples and going to those disciples because he's not the Christ, but that guy is. Yes, leave, go, be with the Christ. And that's why, yes, leave, go as Christ calls you. Be open-handed with everything that you are because I'm not the one and neither are you. Verse 29, John uses a metaphor. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. All throughout Scripture, there's a, a lesson that, that's, that's spoken about Jesus being the, the bridegroom, the husband, and the church being the bride. Right? And that's the, the metaphor that he's using. But he continues, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the language there is talking about a best man in our understanding. So John the Baptist is calling himself the best man. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears his voice rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It, ultimately, what he's saying is, I get to witness this marriage. And I get to stand right next to the, to the groom. You guys ever been the best man in a wedding? You ever been close to, to the groom in a wedding? You ever like, had one of your boys get married and see the joy that's in them? I'm privileged enough to get to hold microphones a lot and Bibles and talk to, to people. And, and, and get, so I get to see it all the time. Like several of you, I've performed your weddings. And it's, it's one of my, my great pleasures and great joys to stand next to Joe and Jeff and, and Mike. And maybe there's somebody else. I don't know. I've performed their weddings. A great privilege to stand next to that guy when his bride walks in and to see just the sheer joy that overcomes him. And it's not like, here's seeing Jesus incorrectly, being wrong in John the Baptist's case, it would be to do this. Jeff, I'm sorry, scoot over. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take, except Megan today. That's, that's just absurd. But we do that all the time. But the, the point is, to see Jesus rightly, is to watch this come together. And to celebrate the joy, and to be overcome with joy, and respond in worship to that joy as Jesus engages with his church. John the Baptist is not the one. He's the best man. And therefore, the end of verse 29, therefore, 
This joy of mine is now complete. Like he's seen it. He's he's, He's beheld Jesus. Then verse 30. This is a really simple one to memorize, a really good one to write on a note card and, or a sticky note and put on your steering wheel. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Like, again, lots of application ripples from that verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's a battle happening, waging within us all the time. There's a battle happening, waging within this church all the time. He must increase, but I must decrease. Like, we have to repress our flesh. And we have to engage our God and see him rightly. So that as we encounter the sin in our lives, it causes us to repress our flesh. And, and like, that's a, that's a hard word, repress. And, and, like, in this culture, in this age, like, to... To repress self is like a, a huge no-no, right? Like, this is me. I have to repress it. No, you, you be you. If we were to, to be us, we would be running around selfish, trying to gain for ourselves. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. Watch a couple of three-year-olds with a brand new toy and see what's in us all. And, and no one ever taught them, here's what I want you to do. When you go to the little toy with little Joey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, not, I want you to take all his toys. No parent ever taught their kid that. But every kid has done it. It's in us. And that fleshliness has to be repressed. Because of no other reason but... On the other side of that repression lives our joy. We, we've got to see that. It's not a religious activity. It's a joy-seeking activity. Now, let's look at Jesus being exposed rightly. Verse 31. John the Baptist's response in those verses, 27 through 30, now Jesus being exposed rightly by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. This is John the Apostle speaking here. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In John chapter 1, the author of this gospel, John, wrote about Jesus existing before anything existed. Jesus has always existed. He established the fact that Jesus was always existed. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is, there has never been a time in eternity past where Jesus did not exist. And here is he, he's exposing it even some more, that he is the Christ. He's above all. Whatever it is, look at me, look at me, everybody. Whatever it is that you wrestle with right now, in this time, in this season of your life, that overcomes your brain, that when idle things come to you, that's the thing that you worry about, you're concerned about, the the sin or something that you stress out about, anything, Jesus is above it. There's going to come a time where you're going to look back and that will be in the past. 
Jesus is above it. And here's like, one of the things that I wrestle with a lot is in this culture, I want, to be a, I want us to be a church that is, has something to say to culture and is relevant and can speak into culture. And there's nothing more important, nothing more important in the mind of the culture than the, the issue of homosexuality and the church's response to the culture's asking those questions. It's huge. And the church has to be prepared. We have to be prepared to know how to respond, how to speak to that. The truth is, seeing Jesus rightly, that Jesus is above it. Jesus is above the issue of homosexuality. Gay, straight, whatever. Jesus is above it. Jesus is also above the church's response to it. I need you to hear that. If Jesus is above all, all means everything. There's never been a thing that Jesus was not above. And we stress, I stress, over how we respond to cultural issues and how we can continue to have a right to be heard in a culture to proclaim the gospel in its fullness to a culture that thinks we're stupid. Jesus is above that. And it, it just doesn't matter. We get all bent out of shape and worked up over the fact that this nation was founded on Christian principles. Yes, great, whatever. And, and they're robbing us of our, our foundations. Who cares? Jesus is above it. When... When Christianity is oppressed, Christianity flourishes. Maybe Jesus has something in mind. That's maybe the dumbest thing I've ever said. Maybe Jesus has something in mind. He's above it. Our role here, see Jesus rightly and respond accordingly. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Does that sound familiar? We're not walking any new ground here in 2014. We're walking the same ground that John the Baptist and John the Apostle and all the apostles and Jesus himself walked. Verse 33, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. And whenever we see secure words like setting your seal, God is involved in that, and it's not breakable. It's a really profoundly strong thing. We don't have time to to deal with that word in particular, but understand that it's really strong, the seal that is set by God, that God is true. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. This that that we're studying, this thousands and thousands of year old book is the word of God meant to enlighten us so that we might see Jesus rightly. 
For he whom God sent, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, utters the words of God. And through them, for he gives his spirit without measure. As we encounter the word of God, the true right word of God, God is in the midst of that giving his spirit. And the fruit that comes from us, we know in other portions of scripture, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those things come from the spirit. Those who see God rightly own those things. And wouldn't you like to really own those things all the time? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be a, a craving of your soul to, to know and experience peace all the time? This is what the promise here, the words of God bring us spirit without measure, joy, gentleness, self-control, peace, hope, love. Those are all wonderful things. You don't have to be a Christian or in the church or even be concerned with things of the Bible to, to pursue and, and enjoy love and joy and peace and patience. These are virtues, universal virtues, that are given to us by the Spirit. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is the final scene of the sixth sense, exposing all of what God is doing. And then verse 36. I want to spend our last time looking deeply at at verse 36 First, let's read it. Whoever believes in the, Son of, in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The, the hinge word in this verse is the word believes. And it, this word shows up 85 times in John's gospel, more than double any other portion of Scripture. It appears a lot in Romans, but more than double any place else this word appears in Scripture. It appears in John's Gospel in its believes. And it's another case where our language is weak. Because we see believes and we think believes. But there's way, way more than, than that. This is like a three, like a three-prong. There's, there's root words, like compound words. This one is three. This word believes. And I've got to go to my notes so we, we get it exactly correct. The, the first word is, is just simply means to, to believe, to have an understanding to believe. The second word is a word that's mostly translated as faith. And I've taught this word before. It's, it's pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And it means this, the conviction. So conviction going beyond just a belief. A conviction means belief that changes us, changes our behavior. So we've got the first word is just belief. The second word is, is a step higher, belief that brings us conviction. And the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. This is faith. Whenever you see the word faith in Scripture, probably 90% of the time, it's this word, this Greek word, it's, which is rooted in, I believe this, and this belief has caused me to, to move into action. And it's an action of trusting. It's an action of, of surrendering of who I am. So belief with conviction. This word, this beliefs, is 
whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This belief goes even beyond that. So we started with believe, then we go to belief with conviction. Now we come to this word, believes. It's conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of soul to trust in Jesus. You're picking up the, the, the weight of this word. So it's, it's a belief and a conviction of that belief, but it, it's, it's more than that. The conviction comes to impelled in us. Like we have to respond because of what is inside of us. Does that make sense? God is, has planted this in us, and because it's in us, this is the way that we act. We can't, it's not a decision that we make, which is what pistis is. It's belief that brings conviction. This is a belief that brings conviction that we can't help ourselves of. And it's the result of seeing God rightly. You with me? It's, it's massively important. And it, it should bring us to a lot of introspection. Is this true of me? Is this not true of me? Are there patterns in my life where this is not true of me? Do do I need to to invite the gospel, to invite Jesus, to invite God into this portion of my life because there is no impelling of his spirit there? The answer to that question is yes. There are places there in your life. Let me help you with that. And, and the, the whole point of all this, and, and, and we've, we've examined these words closely, but again, back to 40,000 feet, the whole point of this is you might see Jesus rightly, and not just the whole point of, of these last 30 minutes, but the whole point of your existence is that you might see Jesus rightly, and the response to that would be to follow that. And the purpose of that is your joy is on the other side. Do you like to be happy? Here's the path. Do you like to have peace? Here's the path. Do you like to have peace and happiness when life sucks? Here's the path. It's this believes. God wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you himself. Let's pray and and respond to our God. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for your apostle, John, who apprehended your truth and wrote it down, and you persevered it thousands of years so that we could interact with it. God, I thank you for those facts. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your truth. Now I pray that you would explode that gospel into hearts and lives in this room. We would see you rightly and we would pattern our lives after having seen you rightly. God, I pray as as life throws itself at us and the distraction of life throws itself at us that we would see the end, that you are in fact the Christ. God, we give our lives to that. Christ's name.